0: Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. ...to highlight. Now, however, having said that, I also hope by now, having gone through this book, you know that this is the Word of God. There is nothing in the Word of God that is not there by divine design. So therefore, there is something for us in every section, every letter of the Word of God. It's very rich. There's always something for us to teach. Um, so I hope that we can pull out some things that are beneficial for us tonight. And immediately, I would just say... Um, You know, this is dealing with the division of the priesthood, the Levites, the priesthood. We must ask ourselves, what does the priesthood do? What was the reason that they were called into service for the nation of Israel by the Lord? It's to serve God. They were the ones who officiated the temple, tabernacle worship. They did all of these things. Therefore, knowing now that we are a priesthood, we'll talk about that more as we go on, Every time we see something to do with the Levites in Scripture, our ears should sort of prick up because it has a lesson for us there as priests under the new covenant for us today. So I want us to meditate hard on these scriptures. Whenever you see something about the Levites in Scripture, think very carefully before you just read through and sort of consign it to an era of an old covenant that's not necessarily relatable to us. That would be a mistake. The three chapters are really to do. 24 is really to do with order in the service of God, in the worship of God. Twenty-five would be worship in the service of God, and twenty-six would be service in the house of the Lord. So we're going to look at those three things uh, as we go through. Many of Testament characters, so there are some real famous ones in here, and we'll, we'll highlight a few of them as we go forward. Now, chapter 24... This is David dividing up the priests. What he basically did is he divided the entire Levitical priesthood into 24 separate courses they were called 24 separate sections. And there would obviously be someone at the head who would sort of be responsible for that course. And what would then happen is between these 24 different divisions, they would rotate on a cycle throughout the year, so that each course only did a certain number. I think it works out about two weeks at a time, actually on. Kind of on duty, so to speak, like on call in the temple or the tabernacle compound at this time. That, that's roughly pretty much what we have in chapter 24. But let's, let's read verse 1 together, 1 and 2, and we'll highlight a few things. So it says, Now the divisions of the descendants of Aaron were these. The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no sons. So we get to see here what happened to the sons of Aaron, the great high priest that we read about throughout the Old Testament. And we learn of his sons. Now, many of you will be familiar with the names Nadab and Abihu, probably more than you are with the other two there, even though it's the other two that are actually going on being faithful in the Lord. But we know what happened with Nadab and Abihu. And as is typical, as Doug's mentioned a few times, 1 Chronicles, it doesn't really want to go in to what exactly Nadab and Abihu did. It's very briefly just says, and died before the Lord. But I do want us just to remind ourselves uh, what they did. So if we turn to the chapter 10, uh, just to help us understand what we're looking at here. And why I want to do this, because we see something very similar to something I, the last time I was teaching, we were looking at the m- moving of the ark, remember, from Kiriath to Urim, the house of Obed-Edom, up to Jerusalem. And you remember Uzzah. He reached out and he touched that ark, and he was struck dead immediately. Remember that event, and we talked about how uh, he was struck dead because they were copying the Philistines and moving the ark and not doing things where God had instructed. We see something very similar to that here with Nadab and Abihu, and I believe it's the same sort of point that God is emphasizing. So Leviticus 10, verses one to three, it says: Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans. And after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, it it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honoured. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Very similar event kind of shocks us with its maybe harshness in that sense, just as when Uzzah was struck dead, Nadab and Abihu were consumed with fire from the altar. The point was that they did not approach the Lord in the right manner. Now, in the context of Leviticus, the glory of the Lord had just descended in Leviticus chapter 9 to the tabernacle for the first time. This was an awe-inspiring period of Israel's history. The Shekinah glory was now hovering in the midst of Israel. And obviously, caught up in the excitement, the two sons of Aaron wanted a kind of a piece of the action, so to speak. They offered generic brand incense, if we could say that, on the altar, not according to the specification that God had ordained in his word. And because of that, they were immediately consumed. And there are some hints in the text that maybe they've been celebrating with the communion wine beforehand a little too much. But the point of it is, we get that in the in Leviticus 10, they didn't treat God as holy when they came to worship God. And that, for me, is a very important blessing for us. Worship must be ordered by the word of God. We learn that when we look to what happened to, U, to Uzzah, the transporting of the ark. It must be ordered by the word of God. And that doesn't mean, as people often uh, sort of complain when you make a statement like that, that somehow you're placing God in a box, or somehow you're saying that you're not free, absolutely not what we're saying. I think it's actually the complete opposite. Yes, for freedom Christ has set us free, and because of that freedom, our heart's desire is to willingly be obedient to the Lord. I mean, that's the true way it should be. Yes, we make mistakes in that. Grace covers us that we don't suffer the same thing as Nadab and Abihu, but our worship must be according to how God has ordered this world and the church, primarily, as we see here with the nation of Israel. That means it's not simply a time for us to entertain ourselves. This is something that I believe maybe in the Western world we, we've slipped into on occasion. I'm not necessarily saying entertainment is bad. You know, Entertainment is sort of part of human nature in some respects. And it can be good entertainment, it can be very bad entertainment. But I think when we, if we make the mistake that worship is about our entertainment, and although we may not consciously express it like that in our words, I think sometimes our conversations, if we're all honest, you know. If we're not musicians, sometimes you stand and judge musicians or worshiping when you get on some feeling into, you know, all the things that we've had. Probably all of us have had that conversation at some point in our church life. Um, and that's a you know, that's natural in the one sense. I do understand it. But on the other side, is that, were you, what were, you were you looking to be entertained? Or were you looking to have it done better? These are the sort of questions we need to ask ourselves. Now, if you look at the wider church, obviously we talk about some of the church of the Western world, I kind of cringe sometimes when I see things, you know, with smoke machines and laser lights and I'm not saying that a concert there's, there's a time for those things and they can be done in a godly way using technology. But sometimes I just wonder whether the spirit and heart of worship has been lost in amidst all the, the entertainment, so to speak. And I think this is a lesson that we need to come back to. And if we're being very strict with ourselves, Nadab and Abayu here are a very good example of that. It wasn't because, they, yes, it was obviously sorry, because they didn't obey the word of the Lord. But it, when the Lord rebukes them, he says it's because they weren't treating him as holy. And this means that the worship had got away from the understanding of who it was they were worshipping. And unless you really understand who it is you're worshipping, your worship's always going to be off. You know, we see worship, very lively worship, in many different religions around the world. You know, worship can be done by humans to the wrong thing and in the wrong way. We know that. But our worship must be ordered by the Word of God. And that sort of has a prerequisite that you understand who the Word of the Lord is, who who the the God of the Word is, so to speak. And it is a God who is holy. We have to understand and have a balance between uh, what worship is and who we are worshipping. Now, the lesson is, remember Isaiah 6. We haven't studied Isaiah for a long time. But that famous chapter in Isaiah 6 where you see into the throne room of God and you see the angels worshipping God and all those, they're crying out three times Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is, seems to be, for me, the root of all worship, a true understanding of God's holiness because that is ultimately why we worship, because He is worthy. And every time we see a glimpse into the throne room of God, we see this sort of a scene, people just crying out and worshipping God because of His holiness. And that means, holiness simply means, he is utterly unique. There's nothing like him, nothing compared to him. And that is one of the reasons why we give in worship. you remember in Exodus sort of 19 and 20, when the Lord's coming down? And before Moses goes up to the mountain, the Lord gives very specific instructions, very similar to this sort of thing. He says, I want you to put boundaries around the mountain so that any one of the Israelites who are not consecrated or called to come up they will not encroach upon the mountain and thus be consumed by my glory. You see, this is the holiness of, I mean, it is a consuming holiness. Even Levites who were not consecrated, or even Israelites in the, in the wrong way, if they approached God when he had said it's not a time to approach him in that sense, they were just consumed by his holiness. The, the gap between God and man is so large, it's really un, uncrossable, except for the one thing that moves us into the story of the New Testament. Um, laid and and approached the Lord in the wrong way. Uzzah came close to the Ark of the Covenant, representing God's presence, in the wrong way. God didn't want the Israelites coming to the mountain unless they'd been cleansed and sanctified in that right way. And it's a good picture of the Lord's holiness. And it's a good picture of us in the New Testament, because there is only one way to approach God. Just as he was saying, there's only one way to worship you properly, only one way to do all these things, and when they did it wrong, death was the result. There is only one way to worship God, and that is through Jesus Christ. You see, the better we the better we understand the holiness of God as Christians, even though we're under a covenant of grace, so to speak, the better we understand the holiness of God, the better we see on the burning burning fire on top of the mountain, so to speak, we will be more grateful for the fact that what Jesus has done is bridged holy God with sinful man in a way that he now says we have bold access up onto the top of that mountain. Mm -hmm. And unless we understand the holiness of God, we won't understand quite how dramatic the sacrifice, death, of what Christ has actually done and accomplished for us. It's very easy to to let these things become commonplace in our Christian sort of language. You know, We're so used to talking about them, to hearing about them. And I think, personally, the antidote to that is to stare hard at the holiness of God and then marvel as you see the grace of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, and he brings you together in the two. And that, that I think, is at the heart and root of all our worship, and it should be. And I think maybe if we we had that in our minds when we were worshipping, we'll talk about worship more in chapter 25, it comes up a lot. Um, It's really the thing that's spoken to the most as studying these episodes. Um, But I just wanted to make that, highlight that as we move on. Now let's look... Um, so verses 7 to 18 of chapter 24, they are, as you can sort of just have a quick look at them yourselves there, it basically goes through all the remaining sons of Aaron and his descendants through the other two sons, not Nadab and Abihu, the other two, and you'll see it goes through all, it gives you sort of 24 divisions there. Now let's look at verse 10. It says, uh, to the seventh, Haqaz, uh, and the eighth of Abijah. Now I want to just highlight this. If you turn with me to Luke chapter one, uh, you'll see why uh, this is important. The course of Abijah. So Luke chapter one verses five to nine. Uh, yeah, and I will read it for you today. But it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zachariah. So this is obviously the father of John the Baptist. And it says he was of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And verse eight says, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So what we're seeing here, is that this man, Zacharias, who is sort of the start of the the New Testament gospel story with John the Baptist, and and as we see here, the background to it seems to be these divisions that David set up, the course of of Abijah, they were still operating like that all this time later into New Testament times. So that, that is how the temple was run at this time, 24 courses, although the number 24 apparently throughout various reasons in history kind of went up and down, people died out and killed people sort of through the history of Israel. But generally, they were still operating. And we see here, Zacharias was from the division of Abijah there. Now, before we move on, let me just sort of make a small digression, but it's kind of related. I want to look at the number 24, 24 and priesthood. You see, anyone who has studied, say, the book of Revelation, or you've studied biblical eschatology, that is study of the end times, you will come across these group of people in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 called the 24 elders. Let's uh, let's actually read that text in Revelation chapter 4. There is lots of speculation about who they are, what they represent. Many have argued that they are the redeemed church in heaven. Some people have argued that they are a special group of angels. Some people, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel put together. The group of people that argue for them being a redeemed church in heaven uh, would then argue basically that the chronology of Revelation would use that as an argument for a pre-tribulation rapture. Because if you're familiar with the structure of Revelation, you have the things that that are Revelation 2 and 3, the churches, basically, and then you have the things that happen in the book after that, which most people assume is referring to the end times prophecy. But right in between those two events, you have this little interlude. Revelation 4 and 5, which gives us a glimpse into the throne of God. Now, I'm not necessarily making that argument today, although I do think it's a strong argument. Uh, I want to more look at at their identification, rather than what that necessarily means in in an eschatological sense. So let's read Revelation 4, verses 1 to 4. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardish in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, most people obviously do make the connection here that when you have a group who are represented by 24, it's kind of hinting back to what we've just read right back in Chronicles there of what David did with the priesthood. The entire priesthood was represented by 24 heads and they were the ones spoken of as being the head, the head of the priesthood. The 24 contained the whole. Now, when we're reading about it in David's day, this was a priesthood associated with the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic law. And one thing that was very... Uh, precise about that was that the royal line was not part of the priestly line, so kings and priests were separate. That's why you remember all those episodes when the king overstepped his boundaries and tried to do something that a priest was doing, he, he got in trouble for that. So the kings were separate. However,
1: you know, that, that ended with the death of Christ. You know, the law was until Christ in that sense, and after that, a new covenant was
0: instituted. Remember, Christ said, With my blood, I you know, blood the covenant, he started the new covenant. And what does it tell us in Hebrews? What happens when there's a change of priesthood or a change of law? Hebrews 7.12 says this, for when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. So as the law changed from old Mosaic covenant to the new covenant, there was also a change of priesthood. So it wasn't the Levitical priest in that sense. Now we have what we call the priesthood of all believers. And one unique element of this is that the office of king and priest are combined. And this is from, remember the story of Melchizedek? This is, you know, he was a king and priest of Salem, and this is uh, the order that Christ instituted. He is a, you know, he is after the order of Melchizedek, both a king and a priest. So now you take that back to Revelation and you see these 24, that's our sort of connection to see that he's probably talking about a representative group you'll notice that they both have, throne. they have thrones and they have crowns, indicating that they are both kings in that sense, too. Um, and the 24, associated with the priesthood. Also, the identification for, for them being redeemed believers is the beckled elders. That's often a term that's associated with New Testament believers. Uh, a little bit further, if you wanted, to, we won't go into a huge amount because it's a bit of a digression. but. If you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, if you're familiar with those letters, you'll notice at the end of every letter that Jesus writes to the church, he makes a promise to the overcomer uh, for various different things. But three of those promises are a throne, crown, and white robes.
1: And those three things are exactly the three things that you see the 24 elders having in heaven
0: mm-hmm. in chapter 4. So the sequence seems to fit very nicely. It's a quite a clear identification. Um, and, that, and that's sort of how people make that argument. But 24 represents the priesthood of believers at that time. They are in the throne room of God being represented there. Now, you can go too far with that. But I think it's an interesting argument. But we won't won't pursue that anymore here. You can do that on your own time. So let's move in to 1 Chronicles 25. (coughs) And I I know it might seem like I'm skipping a lot. But if you just sit there and read the names kind of of while I'm talking, you'll, you'll understand why... Uh, I'm doing this, there are just a lot, a lot of names being divided into different groups of 24, so I think we'll get more from it if I sort of do it like this. So again, now we have another list of names, but these are the musicians. And I find, this is a fascinating chapter, and this is where I spent most of the time sort of studying this, I find this a very interesting chapter. It talks about the importance of music in our worship. And I find it, for me, it speaks a lot because I'm not particularly musical, If any of you might know that. So, because I, I'm, not but I'm not particularly musical, it doesn't mean I, I do love music, but I'm not particularly musical myself. However, this chapter really spoke to me a lot about some various things that hopefully I'll put out for you. You see, I want to just take a moment to think about music, what it is, where it came from. Actually, I, I would argue that the, um, from the Scripture, That music existed before the creation of the world. Music is an actual invention of God. He created humans to be able to enjoy and engage in music for specific purposes. It says in Job 38 that it was heard when the foundations of the earth were laid and the morning stars sang together. Every time we're given a glimpse into the throne room of God, it seems that there is sort of heaven is filled with with the noise of angelic choirs. In that sense. Throughout the scriptures, we are exhorted to sing for joy to the Lord, to make music from our hearts to the Lord. It on if you just notice, like hopefully now, just notice how much these things are actually given, commanded us actually, I would say, in scripture, both Old and New Testament, you'll find a command to sing, to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And I would say that's because music is a gift from God. I would say it's one that is actually an overflow of his nature. And it is one of the most beautiful ways for us to praise him. And I would say that is because it testifies to, in fact, a God who is himself beautiful. And it is just an expression, and an extension of his character and nature. And that is seen in the way that human beings image God. And music has often been one of the most popular ways to worship the Lord. And it is the most valid way to worship the Lord. If we remember what we talked about earlier, when it's done according to the word of God with an understanding of who it is you're worshipping. Those two things will keep out there. There was a composer, well, you wouldn't will would know his name, Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the most famous sort of Renaissance composers at this time. He wrote most of his compositions were actually for worship. They were, they were church songs, is what he did. He wrote one piece called The Passion of St. Matthew. I and mean, if you've ever listened to it, it's long, obviously. But what he does with this is he sort of very skillfully takes you on a journey through the gospel with music. And if you
1: follow it along with the right periods of what's actually happening in the gospels and your sense
0: that he raises the drama, brings you low, it's sort of a mourning, emotion. It's just a very, very skillful piece of music that if you're if you've got the gospel in front of you at that time, it is just hugely powerful. And this is noticed even by the secular world, then have it voted as their number one piece of music that will change your life. I mean, it it is that that powerful. Now, Bach was a Christian, he was a Bible believer. And when he was studying 1 Chronicles 25, the one we're we're sort of looking at now, he made some notes on the edge of his Bible or on the edge of a commentary, I'm not sure which one it actually was, but he wrote this about this chapter. He said, this chapter is the true foundation for all God-pleasing music. At the end of the chapter, he wrote, "Splendid proof that music was instituted by the Spirit of God through David." And I find that this is a man who probably wrote more some of the most amazing music that we have, and still resonates throughout the world today. Uh, if you're interested in the sort of the theme of God and music, I did write an article on this. It's on the thecabbagechapel.com website. Um, for our resident musician, actually, little Katie King. It's about pastoral music and Christianity, and it goes into these things in a little bit more depth. But let's look now at verse look at 25, and let's read verse 1 together. It says, Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jehuthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. Now I find, I believe we have very specific detail here that I want to highlight for us. Some of your translations might have, moreover, David and the chief of service, or something like that. Um, the, the more direct translation is what well I have here in the, in the N.S.B. It says the commanders of the army. He's talking of the military commanders, and I want to highlight this point here because this is this is interesting. David divided the priesthood, but when he comes to musicians, he consults with the military commanders. Now, that might seem like an unusual thing. What on earth are the military commanders, the men who are used to being out on the battlefield, have to do with the worship of the nation? But the text says that this is who David consulted, and they then divided the course after that. And for me, this is pointing to the connection between worship and spiritual warfare. Okay? Quite often what we see in the physical in the Old Testament is a representation of something that is teaching us about the spiritual. The connection between worship and spiritual warfare. And again, I believe in our sort of maybe slightly entertainment-led culture, we've lost sight of this. And, and we do need to recover the sacredness of praise and worship music as we think about these things. You see, worship leaders, in a way, are spiritual warriors. We see this actually all over the Bible. Um, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and I'll just give you an example of how we see this playing out in the Bible. In 2 Chronicles... Chapter 20, you have the episode of Jehoshaphat, he was a king of Judah, and he was a good king, one of the one of the good kings of Judah. And he's at this period, he's about to sort of be invaded by the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and all the sort of surrounding tribes. And we see this good king doing what he should do in this situation, and he cries out to the Lord. And um, we'll skip that I'll Let me read a few verses for you. So verse 3, it says Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he turned his attention to seek the Lord. And proclaimed a fast throughout all judah so the first thing he did what he should do he sought the lord and then it says he prayed look at verses five and six then jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of judah in jerusalem and in the house of the lord before the new court and he said "O lord the god of our fathers are you not god in the heavens and are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you it's a very good prayer acknowledging the sovereignty of god and the power of the lord And then jump down to verses 15 and 17. And you see the Lord answering his prayer now through one of his prophets. The prophet says to him, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. You get that faith, stand and see the salvation of God. Famous phrase there. And look at verse 18, look what happened. It says, Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. Kind of a, imagine the scene in your head now. The prophet has come to the king, the king has heard what the prophet, the Lord has said, and he's fallen down, leading his nation in worship to the Lord at that time. And then 19, something unexpected happens. Then the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the sons of the Korites, stood up to praise the Lord of God of Israel with a very loud voice. As the king and the nation are on their knees face first to the Lord, these group of Levites stand up and they start praising the Lord with a very loud voice. And then look at verses 21 and 22. It says, And that the next morning he consulted with the people. He appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire, as they went out before the army and said give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting when they began singing and praising the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so they were routed so the king was obviously impressed with this group of people that stood up and the next day when it was time for the battle he said I want you lot who prayed who stood up and praised the Lord I want you to do that and I want you to go out and do that ahead of the army Now, that's a powerful image, if you could imagine that. Because most of these surrounding nations would have been used to meeting armies on the battlefield. They would not have been used to meeting choirs on the battlefield. This is something very, very powerful here. But notice what it says. They went out before the army, and it says, when they began singing and praising, It wasn't until they began singing and praising, it was then that the Lord routed the armies of the people who come against them. For me, that is a very good picture of sort of how spiritual warfare works in that sense. We know often you know, this whole thing that we see with Jehoshaphat, he was in trouble, he first sought the Lord, he sought the Lord in prayer, he was humble and listened to the Lord when the Lord answered his prayer, he then worshiped the Lord in adoration, and then he acted on what the Lord had said, finally and he sent out these singers and he had the victory at this time. The ancient enemies of Israel are often sort of like a picture of our flesh in the Old Testament. We see that there, the enemies of the spiritual life in that sense. And I think this is just a very simple lesson that we can have in our own life. How do we overcome things? I think sometimes we can maybe overcomplicate things. Have we actually tried just simple praise in our own private devotional lives? That, I believe, can be very, very powerful. You remember Acts 16, Paul, Silas, they'd been beaten and imprisoned in, the, in Philippi and they were in the jail. And it says around midnight they were singing hymns and praising God, okay, and then after they sung hymns and praised God, that's when the earthquake happened and they were released. Again you see the, the thing that seems to set things off here is the singing and praising of God. Uh, the missionary Mary Schleser, if you know her, she was a missionary in China. She used to say, she said this, a famous quote of hers, she said, I sing the doxology and I dismiss the devil. She's kind of saying the same quote that that I'm saying here. Amy Carmichael, another famous missionary, she said, I believe truly that Satan cannot endure it and so slips out of the room, more or less, when there is a true song. It's a very, like, this is a powerful thing. I, I do believe that maybe we've lost sight of this. In the sense you know, we have worship at our fingertips on Spotify, you can just steal people's playlists, you can do anything you want. That's nothing wrong with that, that's great. But I think sometimes we just need to stop a little bit, like the Lord said to you know, be still and see my salvation and understand that this is not just a song and music, you are engaging in a form of spiritual warfare. Mm. Uh, we don't think in those terms, maybe so much, in our part of the world just because of our you know, we're able pretty much to get through our day, sometimes without even thinking of those things at all, if we're honest with ourselves. But that doesn't change the fact that spiritual warfare is a very real part of the Christian life. And I believe that this is something that plays into that. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy, an old preacher called William Law, he wrote one of these you know, spiritual classics, it's called A, a Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. There's a whole chapter on music and read to you just a little part of it, it's beautifully put. He says, just as singing is a natural effect of joy in the heart, so it is also a natural power of rendering the heart joyful. There is nothing that so clears away for your prayers, nothing that so disperses dullness of heart, nothing that so purifies the soul from poor and little passions, nothing that so opens heaven or carries your heart so near it as these songs of praise. They create a sense and delight in God, they awaken holy desires, they teach you how to ask and they prevail with God to give. They kindle a holy flame. They turn your heart into an altar, your prayers into incense, and carry them as a sweet-smelling saviour to the throne of grace. And, you know, as I was studying this and reading these sorts of things and these quotes, I thought to myself, "I am missing something here in my devotional and spiritual life." And I've always put that down to me, like, "Oh, I'm not musical," and I've just written that area off. And this has really sort of uh, convicted me about that. It's no wonder that Satan hates praise and worship. And when I think of this. You know, if you think of what you know, Celeste has said, you know, the devil flees when, when there's true worship of God happening every Sunday around the world, when there are millions of people praising the Lord. You know, the devil must hate that day, which is why it he does everything he can to stop people coming to church in that sense. But this is, this is spiritual warfare. I was chatting with Jake the other night. We were sort we of just having bedtime conversations, and I was explaining to him the spiritual life, and we were talking about things that we could pray for, and I I'd asked him. You know, what area would you like to, uh, to pray for in your life? And he said, I want, I want to get better at worship. Now, that was you know, kind of out of the mouth of babes, you know, when you see these sort of honest admissions, But it was very challenging and convicting to me at that point, because I immediately had to sort of have something to say to try and explain worship to him. But then I also had the realisation that in order to pass on a worshipping life to a nine-year-old, you know, who, you know they're like sponges, and they, but they do see what you learn in that sense, I need to have that worshipping life myself. Mm. And I was specifically talking, with, I think he said that because we've been having conversations asking him, Do you want to go into the kids' worship or do you want to stay with the adults? You were kind of at the age where you could appreciate both. And we've been having that honest conversation with him. So it was sort of focused around engaging in musical worship at that time. But it, it kind of made me think, you know, we can only pass on what we have, and to be able to do that in a way that's exciting and a proper witness for the Lord, you need to recapture the wonder of worship yourself. And again, I think this comes from having a proper understanding of God's holiness again, proper understanding of who it is we're worshipping, and all of these things coming together, approaching God in the right way, seeking Him, as Jehoshaphat did with that on his heart, depending on Him, trusting in Him to answer our prayers, obeying Him, serving Him, and listening to what He says. Like all of that is part of worship to me, and all of these things will play into these issues. Now, if you notice it, what it says in this verse, 25 verse 1, the slightly unusual part of it is, is that it says they prophesied with liars, harps, and cymbals. Again, we don't often think like that, do we? They prophesy with music. Part of the confusion, I believe, is about what prophecy is. Okay, we, I think we do, have, we do have some twisted ideas about this in the Western church. Um, often, we're so singly focused on prophecy as being a foretelling of the future that we don't really allow for anything else. And often we're so used to seeing abuse of these sorts of gifts that we throw the baby out of the bathwater. Now, the problem is, in the Jewish culture, the term prophecy had a much, much broader definition than just uh, foretelling the future. The simplest and most broadest definition of how we see this word used throughout Scripture and in uh, extra-biblical literature is this. Speaking to God... Sorry, speaking for God to another person. Speaking for God to another person. So that means that because God is omniscient, that may entail something that happens to have a prophetic prediction involved with it, but it doesn't necessarily have to. It can just be a message from God to another person that is being used. We see this in the book of Exodus uh, 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel out of his land. And, that did, and it wasn't a predictive element in that sense, it was just conveying a message. We know from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, that prophecy can be used to edify, for exhortation, and for consolation. So that's edification to build people up, exhortation to encourage someone to move on in their faith or to step out in faith, and consolation... As comfort to hurt, to comfort, and comfort. you know, God is a comfort, but God will comfort, isn't it? To counsel those who are either going through pain or emotional distress, whatever it may be. Prophecy is very good in those situations, it's speaking from God. God has a word to people, but it's saying here that it's the music that is acting in that sense. It is the music, it says, prophesy with harps, lyre, and cymbals. That is that message from God through the prophet. To the nation of Israel at this time. Now, look, I believe it probably is referring in many ways to the songs that went with the music, the lyrics in them, particularly. We actually have a lot of them, we've read many of them. They're called the look of Psalms, I believe. A lot of the people you see in this list, like Asaph, they wrote a lot of the Psalms, so I think there's definitely a connection there. But I actually don't want to. The text does seem to imply more than that. It doesn't mention the lyrics, it mentions the musical instruments. So, yeah, I'm not going to. Say that there isn't maybe some sort of power in music used in praise that can actually speak, God can use that to speak to us, to stir our souls, to lift us high. And I think you could justify that from scripture. And I don't find it surprising if you take what I said earlier that music actually has its origin in the heart of God. So those things do seem to uh, sort of go together for me. Music is very powerful. You understand this. How, I mean, just a verse of music can evoke emotions, passion, it can stir up those memories of when you first heard it. Like when I was first saying, there was a lot of types of music that I had to stop listening to because they just evoked such strong emotions and associations of things that I used to do with those music that I didn't want to listen to them anymore. They still do actually to this day, I don't listen to them anymore, but like, it's so powerful more than anything else really in that sense because I think music has that window into our soul and into our minds in many ways. Um, there's many sort of secular studies on that have sort of come out and done brain scans and they would even say that our, our brains are in fact made for music. They're wired in very intimate ways to respond to music. And I believe this is originally the creation of God. And as we know, in a fallen creation, these things are like corrupted. And you've also seen how quickly music can evoke anger and other sorts of feelings too that are part of the flesh. So let, let's not uh, downplay the importance of music in that sense. Right. Let's look at uh, verse 7, the number of them with their brothers who were trained in singing to the Lord. I want to just point out that it says part of their ministry was to actually train people in singing to the Lord. We often maybe don't think about that enough today, training people in singing to the Lord. Um, Let me share you just one thing in my devotional life. um, I, I don't do well with devotionals. Uh, the sorts of style of devotional books. I've never gone on with them. I don't like them, I'll be frank with you. And I've read some good ones. Oswald Chambers, C.S. Lewis. Is, and, you know, it's not that they're not good. It's just they don't really fit. They don't, I don't find they help me in my devotional life. I like to really study and go deep. And I find that they don't offer that. However, you don't often have the time to do that when you want to just start your day with the Lord. So I was kind of always stuck. Like, what is the happy medium? And over the years, what I've discovered is my happy medium is just. To read hymns, and I have this, this is my old, this is a, it's an old Methodist hymn book basically, you get on email for like a few quid, there are hundreds of them around, but this was, you got songs in here from the Wesley Brothers, from Isaac Watts, it's basically uh, John Wesley first put this together and he collected just a huge load of hymns, and sit there for five minutes and read this. And it gets me, it's just like William Law said, it stirs your heart that you want to start worshipping and praising and praying to the Lord. Because hymns should be songs, spiritual songs should be scriptural. And one thing I love about this is you could, it's, it's categorised by topic. Now, every topic, his glory, his adoration, Christ, when you're suffering, like the whole thing of the Christian life that there's a topic for, that people have categorised here, in here. So I want to just read you the preface to this. So you can see, now there's two. This first one is from the, this edition, which is like quite a late edition of the hymn book. But it says this, Methodism was born in song. Now I'm not talking about the Methodist church today, forget that, I'm talking about a real Wesleyan revival that changed this nation. Like, we were about to go follow the way of the French into the French Revolution in that sort of sense, but it was the Wesleyan revival that saved us and really transformed this nation. And this is what they have to say. Methodism was born in song. Charles Wesley wrote the first hymns of the Evangelical Revival during Great Rich Suntide of 1738, when his brother and he were filled with the Spirit, and from that time onwards the Methodists have never ceased to sing. Mm-hmm. I love that. And then this, this is the preface that's actually written by John Wesley from 1779 that was on the first hymn book. And he says this, such a hymn book... It is large enough to contain all the important truths of our most holy religion. So that was his purpose in doing it. And I think we can learn a lesson from that today. Mm-hmm. It was made to contain all the important truths of the Christian religion, whether speculative or practical, yea, to illustrate them all and to prove them both by scripture and reason. And this is done in a regular order. The hymns are not carelessly jumbled together. they are carefully arranged under proper heads according to the experience of real Christians. so that this book is, in effect a little body of experimental and practical divinity. That is what we should be expecting, I believe, from our hymns. This book is a little body of experimental and practical divinity. That means it's a theology book covering the whole of your Christian experience, and there's a song written about it for everything. And they are wonderful, and it's a powerful way to do that. And I think songs, you know, not that I'm against modern worship, I love much of the modern worship movement. But I have to admit, the more I, the more I dwell and read these things, I, I know just the spiritual power of these over some of the modern ones. That's so just, yeah. just, just the truth of the matter. Right, let's quickly just, just wrap up. 1 Chronicles 26, verse 1. For the divisions of the gatekeepers there were of the Korachites, Meshameah, the son of Korah and the sons of, Ahab, uh, of Asaph. Now I remember I mentioned to you these Korahites, these were the ones who rebelled, don't mention them on Sunday actually too, they rebelled against Moses and most of them were swallowed up in the earth, the others ended up becoming the gatekeepers, so what we see here is David dividing the gatekeepers, and very briefly if you look at verse 4 and down to verse 8 you'll notice that it talks about Obed-Edom and all the sons that he had, And it says that their sons and relatives were able men with strength for service, 62, from Obed-Edom. If you remember, he was the man who took care of the ark. You remember the ark was being moved, as we studied last time, and it ended up in the house of Obed-Edom, where it stayed and it blessed him, and here is the blessing. The blessing actually came in the the way of 62 God-honoring descendants who would serve the Lord. What a wonderful legacy that has. No, just as a side note, I'm actually I'm in a conference in Jerusalem in a few in a month or so, and the key speaker is the archaeologist who excavated Qumran, where the ark was kept, and he's giving a talk on the journey of the ark up to Jerusalem. I'm not that excited of it. Verse <laughs> twelve. To the divisions of the gatekeepers, the chief men were given duties like their relatives in the house of the Lord. Now, the gatekeepers, as you actually read in the, in, the, in the law, in the Torah, these are very practical things, picking up the piles, wrapping everything up, transporting it. This is very practical, probably quite hard work, maybe not very glamorous. There's probably much more of it to do than there was actually for the priest who was lighting the incense and doing all that sort of stuff. Um, but I want to just point out in verse 12 the text says that he was ministering in the house of the Lord. It puts it on the same level as everything else that those priests had to do, ministering in the house of the Lord. and Relate this to what we do. Think of everything that goes into a Sunday morning service. Every single practical duty that goes in. You know, It starts way earlier than when everyone arrives and it finishes way earlier than when everyone leaves. There are people doing things all the time. This is practical service. But the text says here that that is ministering to the Lord. All of these things are put on the same level then look at verse 20, the Levites, their relatives, had charge of the treasures of the house of God and the treasures of the dedicated gifts. And then verse uh, 21, this uh, Shliamoth and his relatives had charge of the treasures of the dedicated gifts which King David, in the heads of the father's household, the common, and um, on and on it goes, they dedicated part of the spoil one in battles to repair the house of the Lord. And quite simply, these are the treasurers. It's basically what they, they are. Yes, even back then, treasurers were a vital part of running the temple compound and the tabernacle compound. It was a necessary part. Someone had to be in charge of receiving the offerings, dealing with the offerings, uh, and all these sorts of things. And this makes me think of uh, Tom, when he was speaking up there on Sunday morning. We have so and so much for this, so this is put aside for repairs. What it says in verse 26, they dedicated part of it one in baffles to repair the house of the Lord. This again is another example of this is considered by this text in verse 12 as ministry in the house of the Lord. And then it goes on, let's just look at verse 29 quickly. As for the Israelites, Chenaniah and his sons were assigned to the outside duties for Israel as officers and judges. This is interesting again. There were a group of people who were assigned to work that would happen outside of Israel. As officers and judges, so these are people who are in charge of the political and business interests of the nation and their interaction with the larger world. And this is very important for us because we are called to go and interact with the larger world, aren't we? Now, that is part of our mission as a church. But yet they were still doing it. And what I want to point out is this man Chenaya. He was in charge of all this. So he was a government official that had a lot of clout, basically dealing with the nation of Israel's interests over the broader world but we learn he was also a deeply devoted man of God. 1 Chronicles 15, 1 Chronicles 15, 27 and 22, (coughs) they say that he was a man skilled in song. Again, that issue of song coming up, he was one of the worshippers. He was also someone who actually helped transport the ark, he was a bearer of the ark. So he knew how to handle holy things, and he was involved in worship. Yet, he didn't really do this necessarily within the temple compound, His primary ministry was dealing with the wider world and nations and other peoples outside of Israel. And I think this is a good lesson for us today. We need people in government, in businesses, in professions, in trades, and in our social institutions who are very good at what they do, but who are, importantly, worshippers of God. And they are the people, really, that are going to be the the, the best way to have salt and light in that ministry of the church outside the four walls where we all come to meet on a Sunday. You see, there are people God has called to serve in the business world. Whenever it's sort of end of year, all the podcasts that I listen to, you always hear them say, they'll always say something like, uh, one, of our donors, one of our donors has offered a matching grant. And therefore, they say, they have offered to match any grant that anyone gives to the same amount. That's some anonymous donor. I can pretty much guarantee you he's not part of the pastoral team. You know, again, he's probably a, a Christian businessman who is someone who worships and serves the Lord out in the world, and he is giving giving back to the... Work of you know, the temple compound, so to speak, in those terms. And this is just the way God uses the many multifaceted gifts that He has in the body. But we need to understand this whole sort of sacred ministry, secular divide. That only applied to the Old Testament priesthood in that sense, because they had a separation between the Levites and the rest. We don't have that, remember, under the New Covenant. We're a royal priesthood. So we need to be able to do what God has called us to do with the larger world, but also have that experience of being intimate in the house of the Lord. They knew how to serve God and they knew how to do their work and they're all part of the priesthood. And for me, those are the lessons that we get from these chapters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you all so much for these things. Amen. And I do just pray, Lord, that you would really put these words into our hearts, that we would all meditate on them, uh, that you would speak to us, Lord, and read our hearts to the In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, God. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.